Men, you can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome to Veritas. And kids, welcome in. Uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we're closing out our series in the book of Ephesians. And so if you've got your Bible, you can make your way to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on the way in, uh, it's on page 920. Kids, if you grabbed one of those blue paperback Bibles on the way in, it's on page 569. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, let's look at this together. Uh, We're going to start in verse 10 and read through the end of the chapter. So starting in verse 10, the Word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray together for God's help on our time together in his word. God, would you help us now as we come to your word? God, would you give us ears to hear, would you give us eyes to see, hearts to believe and know. Holy Spirit, illuminate the word that you've inspired in this moment. Empower it. God, do the work that, that only your word can do in our lives. Help us to see the call in this passage and what you've called us to do, and help us to walk in it. Uh, give us grace to to do what you say and to put on the whole armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. Would you help us even now as we walk through this? I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Kyler Murray is the quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals, and um, when he was in college, he was the best player in college. He won the Heisman, the highest award uh, that you can win, and he was drafted number one uh, out of college into the NFL draft. And the year before that, Uh, He had actually been drafted number nine in the Major League Baseball draft, and so he could have played professional baseball if he had rather uh, wanted to do that instead of professional football. And so he's just this incredible athlete, 
and he's been better than basically everybody he's played his entire life, but since he's been in the NFL, he's just been uh, pretty average. Uh, he's struggled quite a bit, and uh, last year he signed a new contract with the Cardinals, and the details of the contract leaked out and let us know a little bit about why he has been struggling. Uh, a detail of the contract leaked out that the Cardinals had put in the contract what they called an independent study clause. And what this clause meant was that Kyler had to spend at least four hours a week on his own watching game film, uh, or he could forfeit up to a million dollars off of his contract. And it explicitly said he could not be just having film running in the background while he was playing video games or watching something on the internet. Uh, see, it had basically leaked out that he was playing so much Call of Duty uh, and watching so little film that they actually had to put it in his contract and force him to do his job. And that, it hadn't just been Kyler, that's been a theme with quarterbacks who have been really dominant in college. Johnny Manziel was the same way. He was the best player in college when he was there. He won the Heisman and then went to the NFL and almost immediately flamed out in the NFL. And one of the reasons he did, he admitted, uh, he didn't watch any game film. Uh, Jamarcus Russell was the number one pick in 2007. He went to the Oakland Raiders, and he started to struggle quite a bit too, and his coaches were convinced he wasn't watching any game film either. And so one day they gave him blank tapes and told him to go home and watch them that night and report back on what he had watched the next day. Uh, and he came back the next day and said he had watched all the new blitz packages they had given him. Uh, and so obviously the Raiders won that one, and his NFL career did not last very long either. You see, all three of these guys thought that their talents and the fact that they had been better than everybody else their entire life gave them an excuse to be lazy and not have to do their job. They thought they could just coast on their talent and get by because they'd been able to do that their entire lives. Uh, but they forgot that once they got to the NFL, there were a lot of defensive players who were just as talented as they were and were being paid a lot of money to make sure that they lost their job as a quarterback and didn't uh, get to succeed. They, they were asleep to the fact uh, that there were guys actively working against them, trying to knock them off. Well, as Paul concludes the letter to the Ephesians this morning, he tells us that as Christians, we're often in a similar position, that we are engaged in a battle, but so often we're asleep to that fact. So often we're just coasting in the Christian life, not thinking that there's anyone who's opposing us and trying to fight against us and draw us away from Jesus, but there is, and the truth that God gives us here in Ephesians 6 can help us wake up to the battle. And so here in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, he helps us know first that there is a battle, second he shows us what it means to get dressed for the battle, and the third, he, he shows us how to engage in the battle. And so first, Paul shows us and helps us to know there is a battle going on. Paul begins to sum up and conclude the letter to the Ephesians in verse 10 by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're to be strong in the Lord because there's a battle going on. And look at who the text says the battle is against. Verse 11 says we're to take up and put on the whole armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. And verse 11 says that our, our fight, our struggle, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other human beings. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in 
the heavenly places. Now listen, this is so clarifying because so often as Christians, we misidentify our enemy and and so we fight the wrong battle or we're afraid where we really should not be afraid. Uh, So often, Christians, especially in America, we feel like uh, we should fear and oppose unbelievers because if we don't, they're going to overcome us and they're going to overtake us or they're going to corrupt us. But what Ephesians 6 is telling us is that we have nothing to fear from other people and from unbelievers because other people are not our enemy in any form. Uh, Ephesians 6 is telling us that unbelievers are not our enemy. Democrats are not our enemy. Republicans are not our enemy. Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses are not our enemy. People pushing the LGBTQ agenda are not our enemy. They're not our enemy. Uh, St. Augustine was right to say that we have to distinguish between enemies for whom we must pray and enemies against whom we must pray. So yes, should we uh, oppose and fight against, the, for example, the evil actions that a terrorist group commits? Should we be opposed to ideas and ideologies that are actively going to cause harm to people and lead people away from God? Yes, absolutely, but we do not fight against people as people. Because, listen, there are people who are going to make us their enemies, but we don't do the same to them in return. Uh, We don't fear them. We don't hate them. We don't fight against them. We pray for them because the Bible tells us that Satan has captured unbelievers to do his will. They're not our enemies. They're captives. So we pray for them to come to their senses, to come back to God, escape the snare of the devil, and be saved. We do not fight against them as people. We do not hate them because they are not our true enemy. Instead, we fight against the devil and his forces. That's our true enemy. That's who this wrestle and this fight and this struggle is against. And look, I know. I know, it's weird to talk about Satan and demons, and and we're past all of that. But clearly the Bible is not past all of that, right? And and yes, I'll give you, there there are some circles of Christianity that way overemphasize the devil and the demonic and attribute everything bad that happens in their lives to uh, the devil and demonic forces. They find a demon under every rock and give the devil much more power than he actually has but I just don't know the person here at Veritas who's doing that. Our, our danger is much more underemphasizing Satan and the demonic. We are asleep to this battle. We don't really think that it exists. We don't really think that there's anyone who's actively opposing us, trying to draw us away from Jesus. But there is. The, the devil and his forces are actively against you, trying to draw you away from Jesus, trying to get you to lose in this battle. And look, if, if you don't believe me, I mean, just even for a second, consider your experience in the Christian life. Why is it so hard to break out of a habitual sin? Why is it so hard to find freedom from the same patterns of lashing out in anger or being quick with your tongue or being selfish or gossiping or overspending or being Uh, jealous of somebody? Why is it that you're presented with so many opportunities to keep engaging in that same habitual sin that you struggle with? 
Why is it so easy for us to get obsessed with and excited about and fixated on literally anything else and so easy for us to get bored with Jesus? Why is it so difficult for us to be deeply relationally involved with one another and and transparent and honest about our struggles? Why is it always so much easier to just put up a wall and hide? Why is it so much easier to just retreat back into living for ourselves and for our nuclear family? Why is it so hard to sit down and read your Bible and pray for 10 minutes without a ton of distractions, but it's so easy to binge Netflix for three hours or scroll on your phone for a solid hour? Why is it that so often when you sit down to read the Bible, it, it feels like you would literally rather be doing anything else? I'll I'll let the Bible tell you, it's because we are in a war. We're engaged in a battle against Satan and his forces. And look, you are always responsible for your sin. You always choose to sin. Satan never forces you to do anything. But that does not mean he's not encouraging you, goading you, trying to tempt you into uh, giving in to this sin and this struggle. He is. He is opposing you, trying to lead you away from God. And so you've got to wake up to this. Because knowing really is half the battle here. Kids, if you went to school tomorrow and your teacher said, over the next two weeks, uh, we're going to study and learn all 50 capitals of the U.S. states, uh, you might pay attention to your teacher, right? Especially to some of the harder states so that you could learn those and go home and stump your parents because you know capital cities that they don't know, like... Helena, Montana, or Carson City, Nevada, or Salem, Oregon, uh, or uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, I had to look all those up, I'll be honest. Um, So you might pay attention so you could stump your parents to some of those, but what if your teacher said, we're going to learn all 50 capitals over the next two weeks, and at the end of next week, I'm going to give you a test over all 50 of these state capitals, and if you don't know all of them, you're not going to pass the test. Well, then you'd really pay close attention to your teacher, wouldn't you? You'd want to know and you'd work extra hard to memorize all 50 of those state capitals because you know that's exactly what your test is going to be on. Well, the the same thing is true for us here. When we know that there's a battle and when we know who the battle is against, we'll take the preparations that we need to be ready for this battle, to step into and be able to engage in this battle. And that's where Paul goes next in the text. He, he tells us it's not just enough to know that there is a battle. He shows us next how to get dressed for the battle. And this is what the armor of God is. This is what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 13 when he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Putting on the whole armor of God is how we stand up against and withstand the attacks and the schemes of the devil. This is why verse 14, he says, stand therefore, and then he explains how we stand by showing us how to put on uh, each of these pieces of armor. We stand by putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, Growing up in church, going to Sunday school, I, I always thought the armor of God was real mysterious. They'd show us this picture of a Roman soldier who had all this armor on, and they'd point out all the different pieces of the armor, and I'd always wonder, like, What is a breastplate of righteousness? How do you know whether or not it's a righteous breastplate? How do you know if you've put on righteousness like that? It was like Paul got to the end of his letter and ran out of things to say and looked over at the Roman soldier who was guarding the prison he was in 
and just came up with this great illustration that doesn't really do a lot for us now because we don't have a lot of experience with Roman soldiers. Now, that, that really may have happened with Paul seeing the Roman soldier. We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul is drawing much more on the Old Testament and the rest of the letter to the Ephesians than he is drawing on the clothes of a Roman soldier. Paul is a good writer, and what do good writers not do? You don't introduce a bunch of new material in your conclusion. You draw everything together. You sum it all up, sometimes with an image or a picture like Paul is doing here. So we don't, we're not left to wonder what the armor of God is. The book of Ephesians and the rest of the Old Testament has already told us. Paul's drawing really heavily here on the book of Isaiah, especially Isaiah chapter 59, where God says, because there was no man, because there was no human being to bring salvation to his people, he was going to do it himself. He was going to put on armor like a warrior and accomplish salvation for his people. Well, that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has come, and he's accomplished salvation. He's defeated the devil. And so now to put on the armor of God, what it means is to put on Jesus's armor, to live into Jesus's victory. I mean, even think about what it says. It's the armor of God. It's God's armor. It's not your armor. It says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your own might. And so what the armor of God is, is just different ways we live deeper into the message of the gospel, deeper ways we live into our uh, union with Jesus, different angles on how we press the gospel deeper into our lives so that we can stand up against the attacks of Satan. And so let's look at each of these pieces of armor and see how to do that. First, he says we're to put on and to fasten on uh, the belt of truth. What does a belt do? It keeps everything in place, right? It keeps everything, it, it wraps everything together, it holds everything together where it's supposed to be, which is uh, really important when you're fighting. And so he says you're to put on truth like that, to, to fasten it on like a belt. And what has Ephesians told us that the truth is? Well, in chapter 1, it says that the gospel is the word of truth. In chapter 4, it says that the truth is in Jesus. The truth that we're supposed to wear like a belt is the gospel message, the good news of what God has done for us through the person of Jesus. And Ephesians has told us what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God created us for life and fellowship and relationship with him and that that's where we would find life and freedom and flourishing. But we thought we were better and smarter than God. We thought life was better found elsewhere, and so we rebelled against him. We rejected him. We didn't want relationship with him. And because of that, we brought death and sin into the world. And Ephesians tells us because of that, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God did not leave us in our spiritual death. He loved us too much to leave us there. So God, through the person of Jesus, Jesus came to earth and lived as a man, and he lived in our place, the perfect life of faithfulness that you and I have not lived. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, he died a death to pay the debt for our sins, and he died, and he was buried, but then he rose from the dead, defeating our death and sin forever, and he now lives forevermore. And what Ephesians tells us is that because he has defeated death and sin, and he lives forevermore, we can be made alive through him. 
We can be forgiven of all of our sins. We can be brought out of our slavery to sin and death and the devil, and we can be made alive to have new life with Jesus and share in his resurrection life. Ephesians tells us that God is summing up. He's redeeming and restoring all things in Jesus. And everyone who will repent of their sins, who will turn from their rebellion against God and turn to him and trust in what Jesus has done, can experience that reconciliation, can experience the redeeming and restoring work of God to renew all things, can experience the good news of salvation. That's the gospel, and the gospel is foundational in our fight against Satan. So is it foundational in your life? Do you know the gospel? Can you preach it to yourself? Do you know how it applies to your life when you're struggling with things like fear and doubt and anxiety or or a habitual sin? Are you able to wear it like a belt that holds everything else together and keeps everything else in place? And if not, there's some work to do here in growing in your knowledge and understanding of the gospel so that you can wear it like a belt and so that it can be the foundation of everything else in your life. And so we put on the belt of truth. Second, he says we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And what does a breastplate do? It guards your heart, right? It covers your heart and guards it from attack. And what the Bible tells us about the devil, one of the chief ways he schemes against us and attacks us, uh, the Bible says that the devil is the accuser of God's people, uh, that he uh, condemns us and he seeks to condemn us and get us to condemn ourselves about our standing with God. In fact, even the word Paul uses here, the name he gives for the devil, devil, it means slanderer. This is what the devil does. He slanders us and he lies to us about our standing before God. And if you see the breastplate of righteousness as your own righteousness that you've got to put on, that if you can just be good enough and if you can just be righteous enough, you'll be able to defend yourself from Satan's attacks, you're leaving your heart unprotected. That's some flimsy armor. Because how do you know if you've been righteous enough? How do you know if you've been good enough to disprove what Satan is saying about you and to be and to stay in good standing with God. You don't, you can't, and you won't be able to resist and withstand Satan's attacks. But remember, this is not your armor and it's not your strength, it's God's. The good news of the gospel is not that when we come to Jesus, Jesus forgives all of our past sins and wipes our slate clean and gives us a second chance to be good enough this time. No, you know you would blow a second, third, fourth, and millionth chance to be good enough. If the gospel is just a second chance to get it right, that's not good news. But that's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that when we come to Jesus... Jesus works the great exchange. He takes all of our sin upon himself and pays for it on the cross so that God can forgive us of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And in exchange, he unites us to himself and he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness as a gift so that God looks at us as if we had lived the life that Jesus had lived, always faithful, always righteous. 
We are fully acceptable to God because we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness when we trust in him. This is why Colossians 3 says that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a beautiful picture of this in the book of Zechariah. Uh, in Zechariah, Zechariah sees a vision of the high priest standing before God, and he, the high priest is filthy. He's covered in clothes that are covered in dirt and garbage and filth, and Satan is at the high priest's right hand to accuse him before God. And in the vision that Zechariah sees, God tells Satan to stop accusing the high priest, and he tells an angel to go to the high priest and take off his dirty garments because God has removed his sin from him and to instead replace them with beautiful, pure, clean garments. That's a picture of what God does for us in the gospel. He takes all of our sin and filth and uncleanness off of us and in return, he clothes us with the pure, beautiful, clean garments and clothing of Christ righteousness, so that we are covered in Christ's righteousness. So when the devil comes to condemn you and slander you and seek to lie to you about your standing with God, about how there's no way that God could still love somebody who does this sin as much as you do, who can't get past this, who can't get victory, there's no way that God would put up with somebody who's as much of a project as you are the way you fight that is not by saying, well, well, I've done some good things this week too. No, you say instead, yeah, I may not be righteous, but Jesus is, and I'm hidden in him. You see, the devil can't get to your heart if you're covered with the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. He can't get to your heart and condemn you in your heart if you are resting in and settled in God's full and free acceptance and love of you through the work of Jesus. This is what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that he gives to us as a gift. So we're to put on the belt of truth. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Third, he says, as shoes for our feet, we're to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? Well, Ephesians has told us, chapter 2 tells us that through the work of Jesus, God has worked peace between us and God, that he's reconciled us back to himself and he's killed the hostility and the hatred uh, that, that we had against him. And he's also reconciled us back to one another. He's restored us back to right relationship with one another. Now, if you've heard the armor of God taught on before, have you heard that the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon? Just me. Okay. Well, I had always heard that growing up, that the sword of the Spirit uh, was the only offensive weapon that, that's listed here. Uh, but that's not really true, is it? Because shoes carry you forward into battle. Shoes are preparation for your feet so that you can march forward in battle. And that's what God is calling us to here. He's calling us to put on the readiness that's given by the gospel of peace to march forward in battle. In fact, Paul's echoing Isaiah 52, verse 7 here, which says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who come and proclaim peace and salvation. Kids, have you ever worn flip-flops to school or to a friend's house, and you didn't really think you were going to do anything outside, but then you got to school or you got to your friend's house, and uh, your friends wanted to play soccer, or they wanted to do something outside, and you wanted to play too, so you went out and you tried to play in flip-flops? 
it's pretty hard, right? Like you, you eventually have to just kick your flip-flops off and pay, play in your bare free, feet. Uh, and so you weren't really ready to play. You couldn't play like you wanted to because you didn't have the right shoes. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. In the same way, we've got to be ready to go. We've got to have the right shoes on our feet. We've got to be ready to go with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is an offensive weapon in our fight against Satan. As we, if we're ready with the gospel of peace to go and proclaim it to our friends and our neighbors, if we're ready to build relationships with our friends and our neighbors so that we have opportunities to proclaim the gospel of peace to them, that's an offensive weapon in our fight against Satan because Satan is losing more people that he's taking captive as God opens up their eyes and saves them when they hear the gospel message. So we've got to be ready to go with the gospel of peace to our friends, to our neighbors, to the world. Fourth, he says in verse 16 that we've got to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, so when you hear shield of faith, don't think of shield like Captain America's shield that you can throw like a Frisbee. Uh, these shields were much more like doors that you could crouch behind and get down behind, and they would cover your entire body from attack with arrows. And so Paul's saying we're to take up faith like that and use it as a shield that defends us and guards us from Satan's flaming arrows. And so what does that mean? Well, one of the other major schemes that the devil has, one of the other major ways that the devil tempts us is by getting us to doubt the goodness of God by trying to shake our trust in God. This is what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say that you guys can't have any of the fruit from any of the trees in this garden? Well, he seems super lame. He really seems to be holding back on you. Are you really sure that you can trust him? He doesn't seem very good. And they believe that lie, and Satan has been trotting out that line ever since. Satan tries to get us to doubt the goodness of God because every time you and I sin, at some level we sin because of unbelief. We sin because we don't trust the goodness of God. We don't trust that, that following God and being obedient to Him and doing what He says will bring us more life and more happiness and more joy than sin can. We believe the promise of sin in that moment more than we do the promise of God. And so how do you take up the shield of faith and defend yourself against those attacks to doubt the goodness of God? Well, you fight fire with fire. You fight the promises of sin with the better and truer promises of God. When Satan brings one of these temptations to you about, hey, this sin will be great. It'll be so satisfying and there won't be any consequences afterward. You don't just kind of twiddle your thumbs and think about, you know, all the pros of that. And, you know, maybe he is right. Maybe this would be a lot of fun. No, instead, you put up the promises of God like a shield. When you are tempted towards lust, you remember the promise of Psalm 16 that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You remember the promise of Matthew 5, 8, that the pure in heart will see God, that not giving in to this temptation will help you keep a clear vision of God. When you're tempted towards discontentment, discontentment and envy, you remember the promise of Psalm 4 that God can put more joy in your heart than they have when all their wine and grain abounds. 
When you're tempted towards anxiety and fear, you remember the promise of 1 Peter 5 that we can cast all our cares on God because He cares for us. When you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, you remember Romans 8 that He who did not spare His own Son for us but freely gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give up His Son and if Jesus was willing freely to be tortured on a cross to save you back to himself, do you really think he's going to fail to come through for you on smaller things now? No, of course not. And so we fight the temptation to believe the promises of sin and doubt the goodness of God. We fight it with the shield of faith, with the better promises of God. We take up those promises like a shield. Uh, fifth, he says we're to take up the helmet of salvation. Now, a helmet obviously guards your head. It guards your mind, right? And so to take up the helmet of salvation means to get the truth of your salvation firmly fixed in your mind, to get the truth of your salvation rooted down there and to use it like a helmet that covers your mind and your thinking from attack. And so is this true in your life? Is the truth of your salvation becoming more and more true to you? Uh, is Romans 12 happening in your life that, that through the mercies of God, your mind's being renewed more and more to think about things and to see things in light of your salvation, to think about things and see things in the way of what God's Word says and what God has declared? We should be growing in this because 6, and finally he tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this isn't the only offensive weapon that's listed here, but it is one of the few, and this is important because this is how we fight back against Satan. This is an offensive weapon to fight back against Satan's attacks. God's Word is powerful, and God's Word is where you get the power to fight off Satan's attacks. It's what you use as a sword to fight back when he attacks you. And so I'll just ask you do, you, do you know the Word of God like this? Do you know the Word of God well enough to be able to use it as a sword? Do you know how books like uh, Leviticus and Ezekiel and Ezra and Esther are profitable for you and useful for you in your fight against Satan? And are you trying to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word? If you've been a Christian for a little bit longer of a time, have you ever read through the entire Bible? Or are there parts of the Bible that you don't even know what God says because you've never read it? Uh, have you, are, you, are you seeking to grow in this? Is the only time that you're engaging with God's Word during the week on Sunday mornings when we're doing what we're doing right now? And if it is, I, I'm sorry to mix metaphors, but you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You're, you're coming into battle completely unprepared. How do you expect to be able to fight back against Satan's attacks if you don't have a weapon? You need to take up the sword of the Spirit. And so this is how we get dressed for battle, by putting on the armor of God. And, and hopefully you can see, often we think that the Christian life is about doing a bunch of stuff and, and changing a bunch of our behaviors and look, I don't want you to misunderstand. There are things to do in the Christian life. There are sins to put to death. 
But, but hopefully you can see here from Ephesians 6 that the Christian life is much more about getting the truth of the gospel and God's word into your heart and into your mind so that it begins to transform your behavior. Listen, if God gets your heart and your mind, I promise you he will get your hands. If we want to behave, if we want to change our behaviors, we don't do that by just focusing on our behaviors. You've got to first behold You've got to behold the beauty and glory of Jesus in the gospel. You've got to stare at the beauty of Jesus in the gospel until you really see it, until you can put the truth of the gospel and God's word on like armor so you can use it to withstand Satan's attacks. As Paul concludes the letter to the Ephesians, this is what he's calling us to, to press the gospel deeper into our hearts and deeper into our minds so that we'll be able to withstand the attacks of Satan. He calls us to get dressed for the battle. But, but the good news is not only does he call us to get dressed for the battle and show us how to get dressed, he also shows us how to engage in the battle, how, another way we actually fight in the battle in these last few verses. Look again at verse 18 with me. It says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so, notice, this is a hinge verse. This uh, is bringing us into this final section of the passage, but it's also linking back to earlier in the passage and showing us how we stand against the devil. Because notice, praying is a participle. It's got an I-N-G ending. Uh, that means it's modifying stand, just like the previous ones are, where it says we are to uh, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on uh, as shoes for our feet the gospel of peace. So all that means is how do you get dressed for the battle? How do you fight against? How do you actually engage in this battle? By praying. You pray that God would make his gospel and his word real to your heart and real in your life. I mean, think about the prayers that Paul has already prayed in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he prays for us that God, through His Spirit, would open up the eyes of our hearts to know the hope to which He has called us, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. In chapter 3, He prays that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. It's all about the love of Jesus and the gospel becoming real to our hearts in a way that begins to change and transform the way we think and the way we love and the way that we live. And so we fight. One of the ways you fight is by praying for this, asking God that he would do this. And notice, it's not just praying for yourself, because notice the all language in verse 18. Four times he uses the word all. We're to pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance, uh, making supplication for all the saints. And so when do we pray? We pray all the time. We're constantly, throughout our day, turning our hearts, turning our mind, turning our thoughts to God. We're talking to Him about everything. We're asking for His help on everything. We're staying alert. We're remembering that, that this battle in this life, it does not end and there aren't days off. And we're making supplication. That means asking for God's help. We're making supplication for all of the saints, for all of God's people, because they're in this fight against Satan too. And so Paul's telling us we should be praying for and, and asking God's help for 
uh, other churches, for Christians around the world. We should pray for churches in our city. We should pray for churches around the world. We should pray for Christians around the world because they're in this battle against Satan too. This is why we do this in our pastoral prayers. It's why we pray for other churches in the city and why we pray for unreached people groups that the gospel would go to them. But if I could give you just a, a tangible, concrete first step in this, I want to encourage you again to pray for your brothers and sisters, other members here in the church. Start by praying for other brothers and sisters here in the church because these are the people that you have covenanted with to help fight against Satan and follow Jesus together. These are brothers and sisters you've covenanted with and promised to help as we fight in this battle against Satan and we, we fight better together. In the new year, we're rolling out a, a membership directory to, for all of our partners to be able to give you a tangible way to know and pray for other members here. And so pray for your brothers and sisters that God would strengthen them and they'd be able to withstand uh, Satan's attacks. And then Paul says next, he asks that they would pray for him as he preaches the gospel, that uh, God would give him the words to speak and he would give him boldness so that he preaches and speaks in the way that he ought to. And so pray for preachers, pray for the preaching of the gospel, that God would empower his word and, and bring forth fruit when it is preached, and pray for yourself, pray for your brothers and sisters, that God would give us boldness to proclaim the gospel to our friends and to our neighbors. Paul tells them he's sending Tychicus to them to let them know how he's doing and encourage them, and then look at how he concludes the letter in verses 23 and 24. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. And so Paul concludes with what else? Summing up the gospel and calling us to live into it. God has brought, he's established peace with us and himself and with us and one another. God's given us grace. He's given us what we do not deserve and he's saved us. He's loved us, and he's given us brothers and sisters to love. He's given us a new life in Jesus, and he calls us to walk that new life out in the company of his family, in the church. And he says, grace be with all those who love Jesus with love incorruptible. Now, love incorruptible does not mean that our love for Jesus never wavers, never stumbles, never goes up and down. We all know that it does. What it means is that our love for Jesus is truly incorruptible, it's indestructible, it won't be broken because Jesus is indestructible and he's incorruptible and he is the object of our love. Jesus will keep our love, he will preserve us to the end and bring us all the way back home to himself. He will keep us from falling and ultimately failing because he will not fail. And that's the hope of the gospel, that Jesus' love is more powerful than our sin and our rebellion and our failures to love, and it is. Listen, the gospel is what you need, whether you're an unbeliever or not. If you're an unbeliever, Ephesians has laid out the truth of the gospel. It's opened up the invitation. Yes, you're a sinner in rebellion against God. You are under judgment for the ways you've rebelled against him, but you don't have to stay there. If you'll repent of your sins, if you'll turn from them and turn to Jesus and trust him, God will save you. God will make you alive. He'll give you this new life and you can join in the fight. If you're a Christian, 
The gospel is how you fight this battle against Satan. There is a battle going on. You do have an enemy, but God has not left you without armor and without preparation. You take up the whole armor of God. You be strong in the Lord and His strength. You put on the armor of God, and then you'll be able to stand. Let me pray that we would. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for all the ways it reveals to us the good news of the gospel and your plan to redeem and restore everything through the work of Jesus. God, thank you that you don't call us to be strong in our armor or strong in our strength, but yours. So help us to do that. God, would you help us to live into your victory? Would you help us to be strong in your strength, in the strength of your might? Would you help us to put on your armor so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil? Please do that in us. Uh, Please make us a people who are uh, day by day uh, spending time in your word, praying, uh, seeking to grow in our heart's grasp of the gospel so that we can wear it like armor. God, would you be gracious to do that in us? Even this week, would you grow us in this? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.